Chapter Thirty Seven of David Copperfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Noonday. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirty Seven. A Little Cold Water. My new life had lasted for more than a week and I was stronger than ever in those tremendous practical resolutions that I felt the crisis required. I continued to walk extremely fast, and to have a general idea that I was getting on. I made it a rule to take as much out of myself as I possibly could, in my way of doing everything to which I applied my energies. I made a perfect victim of myself. I even entertained some idea of putting myself on a vegetable diet, vaguely conceiving that, in becoming a grimnivorous animal, I should sacrifice to Dora. As yet little Dora was quite unconscious of my desperate firmness, otherwise than as my letters darkly shadowed it forth. But another Saturday came, and on that Saturday evening she was to beat Miss Millis, and when Mr. Millis had gone to his whist club, telegraphed to me in the street by a birdcage in the drawing-room middle window, I was to go there to tea. By this time you were quite settled down in Buckingham Street, where Mr. Dick continued his copying in a state of absolute felicity. My aunt had obtained a signal victory over Mrs. Crupp by paying her off, throwing the first pitcher she planted on the stairs out of the window, and protecting in person up and down the staircase a supernumerary whom she engaged from the outer world. These vigorous measures struck such terror to the breast of Mrs. Crupp that she subsided into her own kitchen under the impression that my aunt was mad. My aunt, being supremely indifferent to Mrs. Crupp's opinion and everybody else's, and rather favoring than discouraging the idea, Mrs. Crupp, of late, the bold, became within a few days so faint-hearted that rather than encounter my aunt upon the staircase, she would endeavor to hide her portly form behind doors, leaving visible, however, a wide margin of flannel petticoat, or would shrink into dark corners. This gave my aunt such unspeakable satisfaction that I believe she took a delight in prowling up and down with her bonnet insanely perched on the top of her head at times when Mrs. Crupp was likely to be in the way. My aunt, being uncommonly neat and ingenious, made so many little improvements in our domestic arrangements that I seemed to be richer instead of poorer. Among the rest, she converted the pantry into a dressing-room for me, and purchased and embellished a bedstead for my occupation, which looked like a bookcase in the daytime. I was the object of her constant solicitude, and my poor mother herself could not have loved better or studied more how to make me happy. Peggotty had considered herself highly privileged in being allowed to participate in these labors, and although she still retained something of her old sentiment of awe in reference to my aunt, had received so many marks of encouragement and confidence that they were the best friends possible. But the time had now come, I am speaking of the Saturday when I was to take tea at Miss Mills, when it was necessary for her to return home and enter on the discharge of the duties she had undertaken in behalf of Ham. So good-bye, Barkies, said my aunt, and take care of yourself. I'm sure I never thought I could be sorry to lose you. 
I took Peggotty to the coach office and saw her off. She cried at parting and confided her brother to my friendship as Ham had done. We had heard nothing of him since he went away that sunny afternoon. And now, my own dear Davy, said Peggotty, if, while you're apprentice, you should want any money to spend, or if, when you're out of your time, my dear, you should want any to set you up, and you must do one or other or both, my darling, who has such a good right to ask leave to lend it to you as my sweet girl's own old stupid me? I was not so savagely independent as to say anything in reply, but that if I ever borrowed money of anyone, I would borrow it of her. Next to accepting a large sum on the spot, I believe this gave Peggotty more comfort than anything I could have done. And my dear, whispered Peggotty, tell the pretty little angel that I should so have liked to see her only for a minute, and tell her that before she marries my boy I'll come and make your house so beautiful for you, if you let me. I declared that nobody else should touch it, and this gave Peggotty such delight that she went away in good spirits. I fatigued myself as much as I possibly could in the commons all day by a variety of devices, and at the appointed time in the evening repaired to Mr. Millis's street. Mr. Millis, who was a terrible fellow to fall asleep after dinner, was not yet gone out, and there was no birdcage in the middle window. He kept waiting so long that I fervently hoped the club would fine him for being late. At last he came out, and then I saw my own door hang up the birdcage, and peep into the balcony to look for me, and run in again when she saw I was there, while Jip remained behind to bark injuriously at an immense butcher's dog in the street who would have taken him like a pill. Dora came to the drawing-room door to meet me, and Jip came scrambling out, tumbling over his own growls, under the impression that I was a bandit. And we all three went in, as happy and loving as could be. I soon carried desolation into the bosom of our joys. Not that I meant to do it, but that I was so full of the subject by asking Dora, without the smallest preparation, if she could love a beggar. My pretty little startled Dora. Her only association with the word was a yellow face and a nightcap, or a pair of crutches, or a wooden leg, or a dog with a decanter stand in his mouth or something of that kind, and she stared at me with the most delightful wonder. How can you ask me anything so foolish, pouted Dora? Love a beggar. Dora, my own dearest, said I, I am a beggar. How can you be such a silly thing, replied Dora, slapping my hand, as to sit there telling such stories? I'll make you bite you. Her childish way was the most delicious way in the world to me. But it was necessary to be explicit, and I solemnly repeated, Dora, my own life, I am your ruined David. I'll declare I'll make Jip bite you, said Dora, shaking her curls, if you are so ridiculous. But I looked so serious that Dora left off shaking her curls and laid her trembling little hand upon my shoulder, and first looked scared and anxious, then began to cry. That was dreadful. I fell upon my knees before the sofa, caressing her, and imploring her not to rend my heart. For some time, poor little Dora did nothing but exclaim, Oh dear, oh dear! And oh, she was so frightened! And there was Julia Mills. And oh, take her to Julia Mills, and go away, please! 
until I was almost beside myself. At last, after an agony of supplication and protestation, I got Dora to look at me with a horrified expression on her face, which I gradually soothed until it was only loving, and her soft, pretty cheek was lying against mine. Then I told her, with my arms clasped round her, how I loved her, so dearly and so dearly, how I felt it right to offer to release her from her engagement, because now I was poor, how I never could bear it or recover it if I lost her, how I had no fears of poverty if she had none, my arm being nerved and my heart inspired by her, how I was already working with a courage such as none but lovers knew, how I had begun to be practical and look into the future, how a crust well earned was sweeter far than a feast inherited, and much more to the same purpose which I delivered in a burst of passionate eloquence quite surprising to myself, though I had been thinking about it day and night ever since my aunt had astonished me. Is your heart mine still, dear Dora? said I rapturously, for I knew by her clinging to me that it was. Oh, yes, cried Dora, yes, it's all yours. Oh, don't be dreadful. I dreadful to Dora? Don't talk about being poor and working hard, said Dora, nestling closer to me. Oh, don't, don't. My dearest love, said I, the crust well earned. Oh, yes, but I don't want to hear any more about crusts, said Dora, and Jip must have a mutton chop every day at twelve or he'll die. I was charmed with her childish winning way. I fondly explained to Dora that Jip should have his mutton chop with his accustomed regularity. I drew a picture of our frugal home, made independent by my labor, sketching in the little house I had seen at Highgate, and my aunt in her room upstairs. I'm not dreadful now, Dora, said I tenderly. Oh, no, no, cried Dora, but I hope your aunt will keep in her own room a good deal, and I hope she's not a scolding old thing. If it were possible for me to love Dora more than ever, I am sure I did, but I felt she was a little impracticable. It damped my newborn ardor to find that ardor so difficult of communication to her. I made another trial, when she was quite herself again, and was curling Jip's ears as he lay upon her lap, I became grave and said, My own, may I mention something? Oh, please, don't be practical, said Dora coaxingly, because it frightens me so. Sweetheart, I returned, there's nothing to alarm you in all this. I want you to think of it quite differently. I want to make it nerve you and inspire you, Dora. Oh, but that's so shocking, cried Dora. My love, no. Perseverance and strength of character will enable us to bear much worse things. But I haven't got any strength at all, said Dora, shaking her curls. Have I, Chip? Oh, do kiss Chip and be agreeable. It was impossible to resist kissing Chip when she held him up to me for that purpose, putting her own bright rosy little mouth into kissing form as she directed the operation which she insisted should be performed symmetrically on the centre of his nose. I did as she bade me, rewarding myself afterwards for my obedience, and she charmed me out of my graver character for I don't know how long. But Dora, my beloved, said I, at last resuming it, I was going to mention something. The judge of the prerogative court might have fallen in love with her, to see her fold her little hands and hold them up, begging and praying me not to be dreadful any more. Indeed, I'm not going to be my darling, I assured her. But Dora, my love, if you will sometimes think, not despondingly, you know, far from that, 
But if you will sometimes think, just to encourage yourself, that you're engaged to a poor man, don't, don't, pray don't, cried Dora, it's so very dreadful. My soul, not at all, said I cheerfully. If you will sometimes think of that, and look about now and then at your papa's housekeeping, and endeavor to acquire a little habit of accounts, for instance, poor little Dora received the suggestion with something that was half a sob and half a scream. It would be so useful to us afterwards, I went on, and if you would promise to me to read a little, a little cookery book that I would send you, it would be so excellent for both of us. For our path in life, my Dora, said I, warming with the subject, is stony and rugged now, and it rests with us to smooth it. We must fight our way onward. We must be brave. There are obstacles to be met, and we must meet and crush them. I was going on at a great rate, with a clenched hand, and the most enthusiastic countenance, but it was quite unnecessary to proceed. I had said enough. I had done it again. Oh, she was so frightened. Oh, where was Julia Mills? Oh, take her to Julia Mills, and go away, please, so that, in short, I was quite distracted, and raved about the drawing-room. I thought I had killed her this time. I sprinkled water on her face. I went down on my knees, I plucked at my hair, I denounced myself as a remorseless brute and a ruthless beast. I implored her forgiveness. I besought her to look up. I ravaged Mrs. Mills' workbox for a smelling bottle, and in my agony of mind applied an ivory needle case instead, and dropped all the needles over Nora. I shook my fist at Jeep, who was as frantic as myself. I did every wild extravagance that could be done, and was a long way beyond the end of my wits. When Miss Mills came into the room, Who has done this? exclaimed Miss Mills, succoring her friend. I replied, I, Miss Mills, I have done it. Behold the destroyer, or words to that effect, and hid my face from the light in the sofa cushion. At first Miss Mills thought it was a quarrel, and that we were verging on the desert of Sahara, but she soon found out how matters stood, for my dear affectionate little Dora, embracing her, began exclaiming that I was a poor laborer, and then cried for me, and embraced me, and asked me would I let her give me all her money to keep, and then fell on Miss Mills' neck, sobbing, as if her tender heart were broken. Miss Mills must have been born to be a blessing to us. She ascertained from me in a few words what it was all about, comforted Dora, and gradually convinced her that I was not a laborer. From my manner of stating the case, I believe Dora concluded that I was a navigator, and went balancing myself up and down a plank all day with a wheelbarrow, and so brought us together in peace. When we were quite composed, and Dora had gone upstairs to put some rose water to her eyes, Miss Millis rang for tea. In the ensuing interval, I told Miss Mills that she was evermore my friend, and that my heart must cease to vibrate ere I could forget her sympathy. I then expounded to Miss Mills what I had endeavored so very unsuccessfully to expound to Dora. Miss Mills replied, on general principles, that the cottage of content was better than the palace of cold splendor, and that where love was, all was. I said to Miss Mills that this was very true, and who should know it better than I, who loved Dora with a love that never mortal had experienced yet. But on Miss Mills observing with despondency that it were well indeed for some hearts if this were so, 
I explained that I begged leave to restrict the observation to mortals of the masculine gender. I then put it to Miss Mills to say whether she considered that there was or was not any practical merit in the suggestion I had been anxious to make concerning the accounts, the housekeeping, and the cookery book. Miss Mills, after some consideration, thus replied, Mr. Copperfield, I will be plain with you. Mental suffering and trial supply, in some natures, the place of years, and I will be as plain with you as if I were a lady abbess. No, the suggestion is not appropriate to our Dora. Our dearest Dora is a favored child of nature. She is a thing of light, of airiness and joy. I am free to confess that if it could be done, it might be well. But, and Miss Mill shook her head, I was encouraged by this closing admission on the part of Miss Mills to ask her whether for Dora's sake, if she had any opportunity of luring her attention to such preparations for an earnest life, she would avail herself of it. Miss Mills replied in the affirmative so readily that I further asked her if she would take charge of the cookery book, and if she could ever insinuate it upon Dora's acceptance, without frightening her, undertake to do me that crowning service. Miss Mills accepted this trust, too, but was not sanguine, and Dora returned looking such a lovely little creature that I really doubted whether she ought to be troubled with anything so ordinary, and she loved me so much and was so captivating, particularly when she made Jip stand on his hind legs for toast and when she pretended to hold that nose of his against the hot teapot for punishment because he wouldn't, that I felt like a sort of monster who had got into a fairy's bower when I thought of having frightened her and made her cry. After tea, we had the guitar, and Dora sang those same dear old French songs about the impossibility of ever on any account leaving off dancing, la-da-la, la-da-la, until I felt a much greater monster than before. We had only one check to our pleasure, and that happened a little while before I took my leave when Miss Mills, chancing to make some allusion to tomorrow morning, I unluckily let out that, being obliged to exert myself now, I got up at five o'clock. Whether Dora had any idea that I was a private watchman, I'm unable to say, but made a great impression on her, and she neither played nor sang any more. It was so in her mind when I bade her adieu, and she said to me in her pretty coaxing way, as if I were a doll, I used to think. Now, don't get up at five o'clock, you naughty boy. It's so nonsensical. My love, said I, I have work to do. But don't do it, returned Dora. Why should you? It was impossible to say to that sweet little surprised face, otherwise than lightly and playfully, that we must work to live. Oh, how ridiculous, cried Dora. How shall we live without, Dora, said I. How? Anyhow, said Dora. She seemed to think she had quite settled the question, and gave me such a triumphant little kiss, direct from her innocent heart, that I would hardly have put her out of conceit with her answer for a fortune. Well, I loved her, and I went on loving her, most absorbingly, entirely, and completely. But going on, too, working pretty hard, and, be and busily keeping red-hot all the irons I now had in the fire, I would sit sometimes of a night opposite my aunt, thinking how I had frightened Dora that time, and how I could best make my way with a guitar case through the rest of the forest of difficulty, until I used to fancy that my head was turning quite gray. End of a little cold water. Recording by noonday.